You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Holy Spirit, as you've been among us, as we've opened your word and sung your praises and prayed to you, now we ask that you would open your word yet again in power and come to us and speak to us, and that in speaking to us you'd do two things, that you show us our need for Jesus and that you give him to us. Amen. So I don't know if, uh, if you see what I'm seeing, but everybody around us is aching. Everybody around us is aching constantly with a kind of inner chronic pain that doesn't really go away. You know, it may manifest itself in secondary emotions that don't look like aching. In fact, I, th I think this is what's going on with kids who maybe don't understand what this passage is talking about with the deep ache yet because developmentally they're just not ready and so kids kind of express this pain in all sorts of ways whether acting out anger or craziness or whatever but there's something about all of humanity that if you're just honest you're looking around and you're kind of peeling back the layers there's a collective ache a collective groan that we all have um, and one could say that all our various habits of life, the things that we attach ourselves to, tend to be those things that try to cover up and medicate that ache. But tonight's passage, it addresses that ache, and I want to talk about that ache. But if you're like me, as we've been going through Hebrews, every time you turn from the psalm to the next page, poof, you know, all this text comes out and you're like, holy cow, I'm never going to be able to pay attention for all this. Uh, you know, and there's this long passage. And uh, it's hard because Hebrew really expresses itself in these big chunks and big ideas. So maybe before we delve into what this passage is saying and how it's addressing that ache, let's recap because it's been a lot to absorb. The big idea, if you were to sort of write down one sentence about what Hebrews 9 through 10 is about, is that Jesus is a better greater high priest because he has presented a better and greater sacrifice. Jesus is a better and greater high priest because he's presented a better and greater sacrifice. It shows this first in chapter 9 by contrasting earthly temporal realities of the way God worked in the old covenant with Moses with the heavenly eternal realities of the way God's working through Jesus it describes these earthly temporal realities like this. The blood of animal sacrifices offered repeatedly with vessels and items used for worship in the physical temple. And it contrasts these with the heavenly eternal realities, saying this is the real deal. The blood of Jesus offered once for all time with his own work of life and death in the very presence of God. And ooh, I'd love to tease out the implications of what this means for, say, all the symbolic stuff that we utilize here in worship at the Advent, like chalices and golden eagle lecterns and candles and stained glass and even the communion bread and wine. But 
we've got to save that for another time, maybe a conversation where you take me out to coffee or something like that. But if we were to summarize what this is all about, all those things in the Old Testament were shadows on a wall. And once we look beyond those shadows to the object on which uh, the light was actually shining to create those shadows, we see Jesus Christ, the great high priest. But the question is for us, what does this mean for me? I mean, I'm over here dealing with this ache that won't go away. I mean, we're not first century people who have a long history of some sacrificial system or a long history of synagogue worship and training in the Old Testament both religiously and culturally. I mean, even this word priest isn't something in our daily vocabulary except for maybe if you're around a lot at the Advent or you're an Episcopalian or you're Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholic or maybe even Buddhist or something else like that. So allow me to give you a definition of priest that I think is the kind of definition that we could use on the street. And once I do this, yeah, we could fudge a little bit of the details and quibble, but I want to give us a definition that works and works for us tonight. A priest is someone or something which closes the gap for us between who we want to be and who we really are. Someone or something which closes the gap for us between who we want to be and who we really are. Let me illustrate this through a, a story that my wife tells me sometimes about the nature of women dining together. Okay, women, have you ever noticed that if you're with like a group of six to eight friends, you're sitting around a dining table uh, at a restaurant or something like that, inevitably the moment in the meal comes when the the per person waiting on you comes before you, hands out the dessert menus, right? Women, are you starting to feel a little bit of tension already? The dessert menus get passed around and the women uh, start looking at each other and, and the, the waiter asks the question, would any of you like some dessert tonight? Pregnant pause, right? Pregnant pause with the ladies. Why? Because they're all feeling the tension in the moment. They don't want to express what they really want, which is the dessert. But instead, you know, they want to sort of live up to the, the hype that the world gives about what a woman should be and temperate and, you know, watching all kinds of calories and stuff like that. So no one says a thing until one woman pipes up and asks ah, a little simple question. She might lean over to her friend and say, hey, what if we split something? You know, just a little something. Maybe we could split something for the whole table, you know, where everybody gets just one bite. And the women kind of look like, is she baiting me? Is this for real? And so there's this dance that we do in our brains uh, when, when we're ladies around a table, right? And these ladies are thinking about it. And finally, someone agrees, yeah, maybe we'll do that. And they start looking at the menu and deciding. And fast forward to the end of this whole crazy cultural process. They're all ordering their own dessert, right? So... Now think about that first lady who poked her head up out of the horizon. What might we call that lady? Well, we could call her a dessert priest, okay? She's a dessert priest because she's closed the gap between who they really are and who they want to be. You see, who they really are, uh, who they want to be, you know, are, are, or sorry, who they really are, are women who are sort of scared and uh, defensive about being sort of called out in front of other people as dessert lovers, for goodness sakes. We wouldn't want to do that because that's not, not the right thing. And who they want to be are women swimming in, swimming in tubs of creme brulee, right? That's just who they want to be. But that's, a, that's kind of a funny illustration, but we can get more serious, actually, with all kinds of 
priests we cling to and appeal to all around us. And believe me, I only had to start sort of surveying my own life to come up with these. I mean, have you ever thought, for instance, about the priestly nature of Instagram filters? Instagram filters. It takes a picture, the actual picture that you took, and puts an overlay of coloration on it that makes your skin look better, that makes the shadowing sort of appeal to your physique. And probably even before that, we filtered the picture by taking several and finding that best angle, right? And so in a way, Instagram filters function in a, in a priestly role, narrowing that gap between who we want to be and who we really are. And for, for ladies and maybe for some men, you know, sometimes makeup functions in this way, right? Too, it can be a kind of way of projecting who we really want to be, but actually under this makeup is blemishes and things that show others who I really am. These are, this, it's a priestly role that this makeup has to sort of close the gap on this kind of thing. Or how about just the filtered nature of all our social media posts, the things that we write on there. They're typically not who we really are because if people saw who we really are, well, we know what happens on social media. You get trolled, you get commented on, you get beaten up. And so, in order to project who we really are, we type all kinds of things. If we want to be viewed as, as someone who's pro the right issue, we'll, we'll take a stand for that issue because we want people to see who we really are. But deep down we know we're a little bit more conflicted than we let on, a little more wounded than we let on. Or if we want people to think that we have a, a good life or a happy life, or even if we don't, we certainly wouldn't be projecting and portraying on social media all the things that are really going on. And so we have the highlights, you know, the happy moments on social media. Or how about this? Have you ever thought about the priestly nature of fitness culture? Uh, when we moved to Birmingham was really the first time in my life where I started working out consistently. And I'll tell you, once you start doing that and you're part of gym culture, you get sucked into this vortex of fitness. And all of a sudden you find yourself looking at all these videos of how to do these lists properly and uh, things that help you to learn how to affect your diet the right way. And what's the sort of statement that they give you when they're trying to, to, to sell you on the right way of doing things in this culture of fitness? They're trying to tell you you can actually achieve the person that you want to be. And let us, as sort of your priests, close this gap for you between who you are and who you really want to be. Same thing applies to health food culture, right? Who we really want to be versus who we really are. But I want to be honest, those examples don't really even get to the ache level that I'm talking about, the deep pain. So maybe to get a little closer... You know, some of us are coming back from our annual seasons of rest known as vacation. Uh, I just got back from vacay not long ago, and Matt just got back from sabbatical. He's looking all beautiful and rested and happy. And have you ever thought, have you ever thought about the priestly nature of vacations? I think about my own family vacation and some of the feelings that get conjured up in my own heart. It's funny, but our summer vacation... It becomes our kind of annual day of atonement where we try to atone for the year's worth of missed opportunities with our kids or our spouses or our friends or our loved ones or to atone for the places where we chose work instead of rest or to focus on other things instead of the very souls that are around us. That's what we hope that we can sort of inject into a whole 
couple of weeks that really require a, a whole year. The fact that we have to work so hard at rest, it shows us that our vacations function for us in a priestly manner, spanning the gap for us between who we want to be and who we really are. Because who we want to be is a, a free, happy, leisurely, totally in tune with others person. You know, gosh, that actually sounds kind of like heaven, doesn't it? And who we really are is a nervous, obsessed, distracted, anxious, exhausted soul. And we need vacation just to sort of reset the exhaustion clock a little bit. And I think as we talk about this, we're getting closer to the ache, aren't we? So I want to talk about this ache. I'll tell you where I find this ache. And maybe you find it in the same place or somewhere else. I find this ache mostly when my head is hitting the pillow. When I'm going to bed and reviewing all those tapes of the day or the week in my head. Rarely does my film review lead to happy places. Those reviews usually lead me to groans, groaning. Just a few nights ago, my head hit the pillow and I was immediately confronted by the fact that just a few hours earlier, I absolutely blew my top yelling at one of my kids. The ache, the groaning. What are your aches? When and where do they come? Our passage tonight tells us that our aches are symptoms of a greater problem. We might call our presenting aches second-order aches that are symptomatic of a first-order ache. Hebrews uses a particular word for this ache, and it uses the word three times, all in chapters 9 and 10. It uses the word conscience. It's our built-in moral reasoning. It's that native OS that can't be wiped from us. And it's always instinctively distinguishing between good and bad. And this OS, it's, it's ruthless. For me, it always kicks in when my head hits the pillow. Our ache, our conscience, is telling us something. First, it's telling us deep down that God really exists. God's really out there. This ache is actually evidence of God himself. Second, it's telling us that there really is a significant gap, despite our online postings, between who we want to be and who we really are. And third, it's telling us that this gap is actually the distance between us and God. And that who we want to be, deep down, because we're hardwired by God to feel this way, who we want to be is near to God close to God and with God. But we can't because we're who we really are, not who we want to be. And so we ache and we ache and we ache. Tonight's passage is here to remind us that there's great hope for those of us who are in the middle of this ache Chapter 9, verse 14. The blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, will, listen to this, purify 
our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Translation, Jesus has come to heal your ache. And he's the only one who can do it. The Bible here tells us that this relentless OS, this conscience, this ache, only finds healing at the place where the great high priest offered his once-for-all sacrifice. It only finds healing at the place of the cross of Jesus Christ. And here's what the healing looks like according to the author of Hebrews in chapter 10. For by a single offering, he has perfected, finished for all time, those who are being sanctified. And by the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Meaning, he is in the process of programming a totally new OS, one free of the ache of conscience. And after all this saying, and this is the real mind blow here, then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Now think about that. God's omniscient. Does God forget anything? The Bible says, yes, he does. There's one thing that God chooses to completely and utterly forget. Your sin. That thing that keeps you up at night. The conscience, the thing that makes you ache. God chooses to forget that. And here, especially in this instance, we mustn't project our humanity onto God. Because when someone deeply wrongs us, we maybe are able to get to the place where we forgive. But if we're honest, we never really forget. Because we've always got this scar, we've always got this wound, and it's always there for us. But people, hear God's word clearly tonight. God isn't like that. We need a theology of divine forgetfulness. You see, the reality is, you and I will continue to go to bed with that ache. Because when we review the day, we see all the ways that we've hurt others, we've sabotaged ourselves, we've received wounds, and we've given wounds. But because of Jesus' death on the cross, brothers and sisters, hear me clearly tonight. The sins that you can't forget, God can't remember. So to sum it all up, the author of Hebrews in these various verses says to you tonight, I've got bad news and I've got good news. The bad news is this. The ache will never fully go away this side of death. You're going to live with it, and others are going to live with it. But I have the best news for you. Jesus came to be the great high priest, to purify your conscience. And as we've learned from this sermon tonight, this means that Jesus came, and by virtue of his life and death, he's now able to offer an incredible balm to get you through the ache for now and a promise that the ache will one day be 
totally and completely healed, never to return. So throw yourself again on that promise tonight. Believe in Jesus again, or maybe for the first time, and you will find healing. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.